As we stand, let us pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come again and move in this place, that you would breathe upon us, that you would illuminate your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. David Troutman, our associate rector here, told me earlier this week that he'd had a dream and that I was in it, which is always a little bit disconcerting. But the gist of the dream went like this. It was Easter Day, and David had decided that between the 9 o'clock service and the 11 o'clock service, he'd just pop out into town and have a bite to eat. Well, he'd got delayed and stuck in traffic, so he was desperately trying to call me on his cell phone to say that he wouldn't make it back for the 11 o'clock service. I mean, this was Easter Sunday morning. What were you thinking, David? (laughs) I think David's dream is probably every clergy person's nightmare. We dream either that we're going to miss some crucial event like the day of Pentecost or somebody's wedding or baptism or, or funeral, and, uh, and we have these fears. Or uh, we think, you know, we might turn the page of our notes and find there's nothing there. Uh, actually, that wasn't a dream in my case. That's happened to me twice. <laughs> but anyone who preaches will likely, if they're honest, be able to confess to experiencing feelings that may range from mild discomfort to abject terror. Well, today, we encounter a preacher who must have felt at once utterly ridiculous and more than a little afraid. The preacher is the prophet Ezekiel. The people of Israel are in a dreadful state. They're in exile. Life is grim. Ezekiel had received his call from God in 597 BC, and it was a tough assignment. Indeed, he was so overwhelmed when he was first called that he sat stunned for a whole week. Furthermore, God had warned Ezekiel that he was being called to preach to a rebellious people who were hard-headed with stubborn hearts. But whether they listened or not, he was to preach anyway. Well, this morning we joined the account of Ezekiel's ministry in a scene that may be known to some of you this scene in the Valley of Dry Bones. And we encounter Ezekiel being given an extraordinary preaching assignment. He tells us, the hand of the Lord came upon me. Well, that in itself is a little disconcerting. What would it mean? Well, he he tells us. He brought him out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. Ezekiel was being given a vision from God. This, if you like, is the ultimate in virtual reality. And the image before him was shocking. It was a huge valley that was filled with bones. The spirit then takes Ezekiel on a walk through the valley. And it is thick with unburied, dry, dead as dead can be bones. It's hard to fathom the scale, hard to imagine what on earth God wanted him to do in the midst of this dreadful scene. Well, God then asks Ezekiel a question. 
Can these bones live? Well, what kind of a question is that? There you are, standing in the middle of absolute desolation amongst all these bones, stretching out as far as the eye can see, and God says, so uh, what do you reckon? Could these bones come back to life? Ezekiel, who seems to be as sharp as a tack, says, oh Lord God, you know. Now, we know that Ezekiel is a man of great faith and great faithfulness, and he would have known and believed that God was the Lord of life and death. But by any stretch of the imagination, this was tough. How could anyone, in the face of such desolation, have hope? Commentator John Taylor says of Ezekiel's response, he had the knowledge not to deny God's ability, but he lacked the faith to believe in it. I wonder, has that ever been true for you? You've had the knowledge not to deny God's ability, but you've lacked the faith to believe in it. We know that God can do more than we ask or imagine in our own tough places, and yet it's sometimes so very difficult. Well, the Lord says to Ezekiel, preach to the bones. Now, that's quite an assignment. Uh, commentator Christopher Wright puts it succinctly. Uh, now, it is a well-known anatomical, anatomical fact that although ears may have many bones, bones do not have any ears. This was no mere crowd of people with stubborn hearts. This was a congregation of bones. This makes you look fantastic. <laughs> and God told Ezekiel to preach in the faith of death and despair, and destruction. But how? What should he say? Well, God told him in verse 4, he was to say simply this, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, could Ezekiel really preach such a thing to a field of bones? Well, yes, he could, and yes, he did. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I had been commanded. That's it. No great show, no incantation, no waving of the arms, just the word of God, which is very, very powerful. And this vision continues. Suddenly, there's a noise. There's a rattling and a clicking sound. Bone coming together, bone to bone. And then sinews and flesh. But there's still no life because they had no breath in them. And then God said, prophesy again. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And Ezekiel does as he's told and the breath came into them, and they lived. And the word there for breath is the Hebrew word ruach, and it's used ten times in this passage. And that word can mean wind or breath, and it can also mean the Spirit of God. And here it is used to mean all three things. In the natural sense, the wind, the human sense of breathing, and the divine sense of the Spirit of God. 
And the effect of all of this is life. Life out of complete deadness. And in this vision, we get echoes that go back to an earlier time. In fact, we've had a few of those. Were you awake in the psalm? What was that refrain? Lord, send forth your spirit and renew the face of the earth. The psalmist is harking back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And that could just as easily be translated, and the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we read that after God had formed the man from the dust, he breathed, same word, ruach, breathed life into him. The breath of God, the Spirit of God, which brings life to the first creation and to dead bones, likewise is the same Holy Spirit who brings spiritual life to dead people today people who are dead inside. Do you know any people like that? Do you ever feel like that? And of course, this is the whole point of this vision that Ezekiel was given. The final verses of the passage spell it out for us. The bones represent people. They represent the people of Israel who were so dead, so far from God. They were in exile and the cry of the people was that their bones were dried up. Their hope was lost. They were cut off completely. They were desperate. And then a third time, Ezekiel is told to speak. And Ezekiel proclaims the words of promise, of restoration, of new life, and of hope. Verse 14. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own soil, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and will act, says the Lord. The Holy Spirit, who breathed life in creation, who in this picture breathes life through the valley of the dry bones, is the same Spirit who breathed resurrection life back into the dead Jesus, and who longs to breathe new life into us. Ezekiel's vision was not merely meant to be inspirational. It was more than that. It was a foretaste of what God would do. Indeed, in the chapter before, God had promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. And those words remind us of other words of prophecy, like from the prophet Joel, that we heard Peter quote on the day of Pentecost in Acts, looking forward to the day when God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. God promised to do a new thing, and it would be for everyone who trusted in Jesus. It would be for women and men, it would be for children, it would be for girls and boys. No one would be looked over. Well, this great picture of the Valley of the Dry Bones having life breathed into them, is a powerful picture for us today. You see, when we may feel 
like the people of Israel in exile. When we cry out to God in despair, when we feel as if all hope is gone, and we are left crying out, where is the hope? Where are you, God? I want you to hear this morning the great words of hope that we have as Christian people. For there is hope. For it is as men and women and girls and boys come into relationship with the God of love and of power that there is hope even in the face of death. There is hope at the graveside. There is hope in the by the hospital bed. There is hope in the face of deep loss. Now, I know that all these things aren't just done away with with a turn. And because of mankind's greed and selfishness and corrupt uh, political systems around the globe, we will not likely see poverty just eradicated. We won't see an end to the dreadful business of the sex uh, slave trade. And just as we will not be instantly free from the consequences of sin and death in our own lives. And yet there is hope. And we as Christians are called to shine the light of Christ's love even in the waste places, even in the darkest places. God is at work in his world by the power of the Holy Spirit acting in ordinary people. People like you, people like me. Not because we're some great shakes. Not because we're so special or so learned or so Christian. No, but because we who have turned to Christ in our brokenness have experienced the infilling of the Holy Spirit, His empowerment, so that even when we are weak, He is made strong. Even though we are like cracked pots of clay, what shines through the cracks is the light of Christ by his Holy Spirit. And we are called to be a people of hope and of power. And we're called to do that and be that together. You know, as we heard in our reading this morning, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. The Feast of Pentecost, which literally means 50th, was the Jewish Feast of Weeks. It was their harvest festival, if you like. And it was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. That's why we celebrate Pentecost 50 days after Good Friday. The disciples did not know what that day would bring. But they came together to wait on God. And what a mighty harvest there was that day, not of wheat, but of men and women turning to God. And towards the end of this chapter, chapter we learn that 3,000 people turned to Christ and were baptized. Boy, must that have been a long service. You know, we've, got, uh, we've had seven today, well, two or the earlier service, and five now, but 3,000? Well, like in Ezekiel's vision so also on the day of Pentecost, a mighty thing happened. It was sudden. It was loud. There was a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the place where they were. 
And then tongues as of fire descended upon them as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit enabled them, they spoke in other languages. God was bringing hope where there had been longing, joy where there had been despair. Such was the power and presence of this outpouring of God's Spirit that they were both amazed and perplexed. And they said to another, one another, what does this mean? What is going on? Well, seizing the moment, Peter jumps to his feet and explains that what they were witnessing was not a bunch of hysterical people who were drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. No, this was what had been foretold. This is what had been prophesied from long before. And that the invitation to be a part of what God was doing was open to everyone so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, as a preacher, at this point, I can delight in this, or frankly, I can become just a tad jealous. I mean, I don't feel that I ever get the kind of responses that Ezekiel or Peter got. And, and maybe for you too, not that you're all in the pulpit, but you share your faith with your friends, and it's not like the whole of Google suddenly says, yes, I repent and I want to be baptized. But I don't want you to be discouraged. Consider for a moment the first martyr, Stephen. He's described as a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was an excellent preacher, and when he spoke, those who opposed him couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Stephen's preaching was just as clear and challenging, I'm sure, as Peter's. Like Peter, he was called upon to bear witness to Christ in a tough setting. And like Peter, he was up to the task. But unlike Peter, the results were rather different. You know, when Peter finished, the crowd responded with repentance and faith. They could not get enough of it. When Stephen finished, the crowd responded by dragging him outside the city and stoning him to death. Whereas 3,000 turned to Jesus after Peter's sermon, we're not told that anyone did after Stephen's. Indeed, in Acts 8, we read, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. It just doesn't seem fair. Peter's message leads to mass conversion. Stephen's leads to mass persecution. Except, here's the thing. If you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Bishop Grant Lamarckan talk about this, and he referenced this, and how it was on that day with Stephen's death and the persecution that followed that actually the things promised of in the day of Pentecost started to really take shape because as they were dispersed in the persecution, so God's Spirit went forth into all the world and the message of good news went out. Well, the challenge and the task of declaring the good news of the hope we have in God is yours and mine. It is our task as Christians. For one thing is clear, that the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost for one reason above all others, and that was to empower those first Christians to spread the good news about God. 
to take the word of his salvation to all. And so when we baptize those we're baptizing today, we will sign them with the sign of the cross, marked as Christ's own forever, commissioned to go into the world. We'll give them a lighted candle and say, shine as a light in the world. You know, in some ways it would be great, wouldn't it, if we saw this morning the Holy Spirit being poured out uh, on us like on the day of Pentecost. I know it'd be scary, but it would still be pretty amazing. And it would be great if it would lead to everyone here having complete certainty in our Christian faith. If every broken heart was bound up today, if everything that was broken was restored, if we could enjoy the most powerful and awesome worship we've ever encountered. And you know, sometimes we get, we get glimpses of all of that. We do. But that's not what Jesus promised when he promised the Holy Spirit. Nor is it what actually happened when the Spirit was given. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit so that we would be equipped to testify about him so that we could be God's messengers to the world, so that we could speak boldly as we heard Jesus talking in John's gospel this morning about righteousness and judgment, about sin and forgiveness. Now, those are not easy things to talk about, are they? Righteousness. Sounds like we're a bunch of bigots. Judgment. Oh, so we're judgmental now. Sin. That's really uncomfortable. And forgiveness, a very rare commodity in many people's lives. These are the essence of the good news that we have. It's real, folks. Yes, there's sin in the world. Yes, God is coming to judge the living and the dead when Jesus returns. Yes, we're called to righteousness. But the righteousness that we have comes from God. And he gives us his righteousness by the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us. All right, well, I'm nearly finished. What will be the outcome of this for us at school, at home, at your workplace, here at Church of the Ascension? Will it mean for us 3,000 new members? That would be great. Will it mean that we will be persecuted? Hmm, not so great. And I can't answer that, except... You know, if you look across the world today, you see the places where the church is growing exponentially, where thousands and thousands are turning to Christ. It's the same place where the church is facing quite extraordinary persecution. This is today. This is now. But whatever may come, for as long as I have breath, I will declare that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved than the name of Jesus. Amen? And I will proclaim that every man, woman, and child needs to be transformed by the Spirit of God. We need it, brothers and sisters. We need it every day. So on this Feast of Pentecost, hear afresh God's words of life and truth and ask Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit. I don't know what will happen if you do that, but I believe God hears and answers our prayers. 
And I believe that he will do that so that you may be empowered to give a reason for the hope that you have within you, maybe even this week, maybe later today, maybe tomorrow morning. And so that wherever you encounter dry bones, death, or despair, you can know and declare that with God, there is hope. Hallelujah. Amen.